0: This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. This week we have on journalist Spencer Ackerman to talk about his new book, which is a history, a recent history, um, or a history of the recent past, Reign of Terror, a, a book about the war on terror. So I'm very excited to hear about it and speak with him. Let's go. All right, today we're very happy to have on Spencer Ackerman. Uh, he's a journalist who focuses on national security and has written for The New Republic, The Guardian, and Wired, to name but a few. Um, he's currently the senior national security correspondent for The Daily Beast. Nope. No, I'm not. No? No, you're not? No, you're nope. not. Well, you got to update your LinkedIn, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> who? What Start kind over. of psychopaths are bothering <laughs> reading
1: LinkedIn? I know.
0: No. What? That's... I, I Googled you and that's what came up. Okay. So what am I gonna Dear. do? Okay. So where okay, so you tell us where are you now? What where are where are you gainfully employed?
1: I am not gainfully employed. I work for myself and I uh, publish a newsletter called Forever Wars on Substack. I'm a contributing editor to the Daily Beast, but I'm not on staff.
0: Okay, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Um today he's with us. To talk about his new book, um, "Reign of Terror," how the 9/11 era destabilized America and produced Trump. It was published this year by Viking. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So this is a really ambitious book, um, and you know, it puts the war on terror in conversation with other aspects and trends and abiding themes in American history, politics, and social life. And when I began reading your book, you know, and and I got to say that everybody should read this book, um, just because the opening chapter, the introduction is so powerful and gripping, uh, that it will make you read, uh, the rest of the book. But I was really fascinated, um, by the next chapter, which and I was struck because it was in contrast to something else that I'd read a while back. So another journalist, uh, Lawrence Wright, published a book uh, about the origins of 9/11, and uh, called the Looming Tower um, back in 2006. And he begins his book with a chapter on this guy Sayed Qutb, um, who you know is a radical Islamic thinker of the Islamic Brotherhood, one wing of the Islamic Brotherhood in Egypt. Um, you know, imprisoned and executed by Nasser in in the mid 1960s, um, and then executed. And could the many of us suggested, and this is certainly what Lawrence Wright was suggesting, was a sort of ideological progenitor of Al Qaeda, uh, and gave a sort of some sort of coherence for for some of their their ideas. And so, hence, you know, going back there. And while your book is about the post 9 11 era your first chapter also looks backwards, but you're looking back to the U S and white supremacist movements that produced Timothy McVeigh, um, and the Oklahoma city bombing. Right. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit as to why you took that approach and then the role it plays in your overall argument.
1: Well, thank you so much for such a close reading Amit and for, um, saying so many kind things about the book. Um, so Wright is looking at Al Qaeda and I'm looking at America and I think that goes a long way to explaining our different focuses um I wanted to kind of demonstrate what the war on terror is and at that point in the narrative would become by discussing who was exempt from the war on terror what that exemption shows about the war on terror and how the history that it represents shapes the war on terror in every aspect. And and for those who haven't read the book, um, what Ahmed is talking about is I start uh, not on 9-11, but in Oklahoma City, the 1995 um, bombing by Timothy McVeigh of the Murrah Federal Building in which uh, he kills 168 people, including 19 children. At the time, it was the worst terrorist attack in American history and understood as such. And it is about as good as a test case as you would ever possibly get for seeing the broad discrepancies, um, you know, characterological discrepancies between what the response to Oklahoma City was and what the response to 9-11 would be. And the point there is that uh, the broader infrastructure of white supremacist violence um, in the United States was left entirely untouched. There was an exceptionally narrow investigative focus on just the perpetrator of this act of violence. Um, the major legislation that emerges in response to it um, explicitly by design uh, targets only foreign terrorists, which is basically in this, you know, legalistic sense a synecdoche for Muslim terrorists, and as well um, deepens uh, the lethality of the American carceral state. The other aspect of that legislation is about making it easier to execute people on death row. Um and there are a lot of historical phenomena, as I'm sure I don't need to tell either of you, uh, that guide that response. That that even beyond that, you know, specific legislative response, the cultural response um, was 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 vastly different. In which there was far greater receptivity on the one hand to the idea that um, a broader response. Uh, would be a calumny and simultaneously a refusal to accept that Timothy McVeigh, and to portray Timothy McVeigh as a white supremacist militant existing in an atmosphere of uh, other white supremacist militants with, uh, you know, definable networks. Um, and really, what that showed was the refusal to understand, uh the white supremacist focused political violence as terrorism that you know in a to to put it in a nutshell that terrorism isn't the kind of thing that white people do certainly not that white Americans uh who are claiming uh to restore uh the country as the founders intended it don't do those people particularly after 9-11 consider themselves counter-terrorists and are treated as such, and that has tremendous implication uh, for the war on terror that we start seeing in the next chapter.
0: Great, yeah. So, and in, in in that initial chapter, you talk about and um, which I, I think people forget this, or you know, it's been a while, and there's been such a focus on the post 9-11 era. Uh, you know, as it becomes intelligible as such because terrorism becomes Islamic, um, that there's this mass roundup of Muslim men after the Oklahoma city bombing, right. That, that already the, the sort of the gears are in motion for a sort of rounding up the, of the usual suspects, right. That, that this yeah. is, this is, um, becomes a sort of uh, a regular trend. Um, why do you think it's the case that there was such consensus on this approach? Because one of the interesting things about the, the the book is the way that it's structured is that, you know, it sort of goes back and forth about, you know, the right and the left, um, whether it's Obama's war on terror, um, or, or proceeding, and then that section on the, the decadent war, which is just sort of everybody d- d- jumping on it. Um, but could you speak a little bit about why you think there was such a, a sort of national security consensus. Is, is this a Cold War hangover, right? Is, is this something that, you know, the, the one thing that the right and the left agreed with, um, over the Cold War was, was being anti-Soviet, uh, and was this just sort of grafting that consensus onto a new enemy?
1: I think that is, on the one hand, a substantial part of it. Um, I'm working on an essay, uh, I guess I shouldn't say who's going to publish it here, um, but uh, it's titled uh, The 18th Brumaire of Anti-Communism, and the point of it is to kind of track the farcical ways in which the muscle memory of the Cold War um, influences, shapes, plays out um, the war on terror. But I I, I kind of feel like uh, Cold War-centric explanations are only deferring the question that, you know, we have to simultaneously ask, why was it uh, that the response to uh, the Cold War from, uh, from America was what it was? Um, and I think there we're talking about far deeper patterns in American history, um, the willingness throughout American history um, to both fractiously divide Americans into real and conditional Americans, um, for, you know, most often, uh, the interests of capital, um, which is frequently throughout American history, if not, you know, inextricably throughout American history, racialized. All of these things play out with great force, um, in the Cold War, um, in terms of the way in which, uh, you know, you will, you you know, it it is impossible not to recognize the similarities today, the way in which um, the movement to end uh, Jim Crow apartheid uh, was seen and treated and certainly politically um, as a handmaiden of communism creeping inside um, the United States. Um, That has a very heavy hand, all of that history, not just Cold War history, but certainly Cold War history um, is the most recent instance um, of this hand of history um, that is there at the start uh, for the war on terror. But I, I think it's important to say that there is a risk when we discuss this of portraying the appetite for the war on terror Um, as something that the public had and and the war on terror is something that the public demanded. This was always an elite project. This was a project particularly of some of the least democratic aspects um, of, 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 the American governmental structure, which is to say um, the national security aspects of it. Um, There are ways in which throughout the war on terror to this day uh, that politicians, play on those tendencies uh, to rally or reinforce or um, mutate the war on terror. Um, But primarily, always, this is an elite enterprise. This isn't something uh, that the public is demanding uh, their politicians do, except in cases where um, those politicians are able to use uh, the war on terror um, in way in particularly racialized ways that feed on extant uh, racial grievances. And we see this in, for instance, the 2008 campaign where Sarah Palin is talking about uh, the first, um, who will soon be the first black president, Barack Obama, um, as palling around with terrorists. Um, everyone's familiar, um, not just with uh, the... Uh, not just with birtherism, but with uh, the Osama Obama meme, where he's you know f- his face is photoshopped to you know um, look like you know Bin Laden or Omar as, as 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 the necessity hits. So all of that history, um, be, both beyond Cold War history, um, is is but certainly uh, with the impact of Cold War history, um, funnels the war on terror. The war on terror is just something American knows how to do.
0: I'm really glad you pointed out the elite project element of this because you. I think you mentioned the stat in the book of um, in 2003, there was at the time the largest protest movement against the war um, to take place and it was global in scope. Um, and it uh, fell on deaf ears in terms of the press, right? So that one of the things that's I think that's kind of interesting um, to think about in this book. And I think you you, you mentioned this uh, in your afterword, where there, there's a whole sort of media story or media history of this that, that remains to be written. Um, and I'm, and I'm wondering what do you think is the role here or what was the role um, of the media in, in those early days? We know the sort of the Judith Miller story and, 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 and that sort of thing, but in terms of the sort of the cultivation of and you put this so well in the book, where there's this switch where um, Islamophobia turns from "this is what Muslims do" to "this is who Muslims are," and that sort of conceptual switch, um, very much like um, sort of anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism, right? Like there's 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 that you know that 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 sort of uh, category switch. Um, I'm wondering what what was the role of we know what Fox media was doing, you know, like like we know that. But what about the sort of ostensibly liberal left media? What do you think was their role in the cultivation of um, beating the war drums and then producing the quote unquote Islamic threat?
1: I mean, over time at the consent factory, uh, you know, that's what we in the media did, not just shortly after um, 9 11, um, which is when like I was graduating college and starting out. Um, but really all throughout, and as you say, you know, aptly, you know, Fox news is just the most, you know, clownish and buffoonish and vicious element of this, but every news network, not whether it was cable or whether it was, you know, the legacy, um, primetime you know major broadcasters um restricted in substantial ways uh the acceptable um uh spectrum of opinion about central aspects of 9-11 and the war on terror um for instance history starts on 9-11 like you don't get to be uh, a major voice in journalism or in the media saying that you know 9 11 um certainly is the work of uh like hardcore uh fanatics who are adept at using religion to justify violence but they also have a material and political uh critique here their actions on 9 11 are responses to American global policing uh, in the Muslim world, particularly in the Arab world, uh, that takes, you know, violent forms like bombing and uh, like supporting Israel's um, assaults on uh, Palestine, um, but also on economic measures, um, both, uh, you know, egregious ones uh, like sanctions that uh, you know, force populations to, uh, to, ba- to bear the brunt of political disputes between America and various regimes, but uh, subtler forms in which American capitalism extracts resources here. And that determines, you know, the, the, the shape of millions and millions of people's lives. Um, and America's response to it by refusing to, at the very least, recognize, you don't have to say the critique is justified, you have to recognize that the critique exists and answer it was instead uh, to say that um, this was purely the work of religious fanatics um, who are only worth understanding and not just them, but the cultures and the religions that they emerge from in terms of widespread cultural and social pathology That is, I think, what's often, you know, the, the kind of default setting um, through, through 9-11, um, through the 9-11 era, um, which is uh, treating um, the Muslim world as violent, um, as conspiratorial, and as um, ruthlessly devoted uh, to barbarism, as reflected in their barbaristic, it uh, was reflected in their barbaric, um, their practice of a barbaric religion, um, and not to understand anything uh, that's happened in terms of actual material grievances or actually, you know, material circumstances. You, you you, know, you you, get a tremendous amount of indulgence of the rhetoric of people like George W. Bush, uh, who hold uh, 9-11 uh, as the opening salvo in a clash between good and evil, between freedom and unfreedom. And there aren't a lot of people, um, particularly on, at that point, um, the the leftmost side of the acceptable opinion spectrum, which is to say liberals and not actual leftists, who are just going, who are who are able to say, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Like, that's a lot of weird shit. If you just look at what the people who did this actually said, and you look at like what reporting from the Middle East about responses and reactions from people there actually are, you get a truer story because it corresponds with, you know, people's actual words and actions, um, and all of that persists um, in a, in in a manner that um, shapes what the war on terror is and can be um it ensures that the response uh to to such a thing is a war on terror in the first place because there is no you know need against uh, a barbar you know there is no need against a barbaric enemy to engage it at all except through you know violence surveillance detention torture um ultimately ultimately death. And, and the, the willingness of, of, the, of the media to grant that perspective, obviously, there are exceptions to this. There, there's really tremendous journalism uh, that comes out of the war on terror, um, uncovering the war on terror and exposing the war on terror. But that's kind of the exception. And in the main, the, um, the journalism around the war on terror day in and day out operated within a frame. That kind of became what you know you you heard a lot in the military in a different context uh, about the war itself as a self licking ice cream cone like it generates, you know, the thing that that it's supposed to um, ultimately uh, address, and that was you know one of many deeply shameful episodes of of the mainstream media. Um, in the war on terror that that kind of persists to this day, um, with the kind of uh, veneration of the security services and a very superficial version of that extended um, to the people who served in them. Um, it was an authoritarian mood, not just in American politics, but in American media um, that shaped and gave voice and gave justification um, for that violent mood. It it is not possible to talk about the war on terror without talking about the media portrayals of the war on terror. And I know I'm belaboring the point, but just the last one here is that um, certainly that's the case because in an era of an all-volunteer military, the vast majority of us experienced the war on terror as a media phenomenon this was something that happened on our televisions it happened on our phones and when we got sick of it when it got frustrating when it got agonizing when it became too cognitively dissonant with the way that we consider ourselves um, as americans to stand for certain values we could turn it off the writers didn't get you know a satisfying conclusion of this season but like the war on terror is fucking law and order it just it just there's just more of it and it doesn't matter if you pay attention to it or not it's just going to be there i should say that i'm being flippant here it matters tremendously if you pay attention to it because that's the only thing that will ultimately stop it but i'm i'm just being a little bit flippant about the way it actually unfolded
0: yeah no i mean i think that makes sense it's it's that it becomes TV. You know, I mean, it just becomes um, episodic. Quite frankly, um, right? So, so one. one um, so I want Tony to jump in here in a sec. But, but one thing that that is interesting, just from what you were saying is this idea of the Muslim world itself. You know, if, if on the one hand, what's being manufactured um, is the consent of the public um, of, of a narrow spectrum of opinion and even dissent within that spectrum of opinion, um, what's also being manufactured is an enemy, right? And, and that enemy is produced as this thing called the Muslim world, um, which is this hopelessly diverse um, Agglomeration of billions of people um, <laughs> scattered across the earth, and and the idea, this this sort of simplistic idea that the unifying element um, is their singular and universal reading of the Quran, um, that this 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 becomes a sort of index into how the Muslim world lives. Um, there's a whole industry that sort of emerges of sort of Islamic experts and slash security experts who sort of, they, they, sound like, I mean, I've done a lot of like colonial, just history.
1: read the Quran. They say yeah. it themselves. <laughs> exactly, right?
0: Like just look at Surah 112 man. And, and, and it's like, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's the same sort of thing as people who used to call them sort of Africa hands in the colonial, um, establishment, you know, that, you know, that, that you know, they've, they've governed Nigeria for a while. They know, how, they know the Africans, right. They, they, and they know that they need a little bit more force than others because they you know that's what they understand. And so on, They um, literally
1: the career of Mike Flynn.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 And all these, I mean, the names that come up like Alan West, all these people who did these terrible things and then are just, you know, elevated for it. Um, but, so here I mean I think what's just sort of so fascinating is that there wasn't really that a lot of pushback from the public right that that and is that just a function of media saturation or because there's you know on the one hand you've got the biggest protest movement saying don't invade Iraq right um but nobody's listening the media doesn't care about that right media media's not going to cover that uh and then on the other hand, you've got this all out audio visual assault on um, American consciousness to produce an enemy that you should be very afraid of, and that might be killing you at any single moment. Um, so, you know, I, I have trouble squaring that right on the one hand, there there actually is a lot of resistance, but then because the resistance is not amplified by the media verse, then these this elite project can just sort of run roughshod Um,
1: yeah i mean i would also just say that like the resting state of america is not very democratic certainly in an atmosphere of war it's going to be vastly less democratic remember what george w bush said uh when he was asked about you know the largest single day protest in world history um against the iraq war in february of 2003 and he said he wasn't going to listen to it because that would be like governing by polls. That's not what leaders do. Leaders do not have to respect, uh, you know, particularly American leaders, um, do not have to respect global public opinion at all. That's comical. Um, American exceptionalism means we know better and it means that we're justified um, in acting uh, in a manner that flouts that public opinion. Because the world is what America is trying to save everyone from. Um, I, I just think like that is a, a very,, um, you know, best fit curve way of understanding the the dissonance that that you point to. that like tons and tons and tons of people don't want the war on terror. The people that don't want the war on terror, are the same people that American national politics is least inclined to take seriously. Um, that is is a dynamic that uh like really leads us to to some very dark places that we we I don't believe have emerged from. I believe have only intensified. Um so you know, when you when you look at, I think now I'm just I think I made the point. So you can cut, you can edit around that last part.
0: So jump in here, man. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I'm gonna reiterate what Ahmed said. The uh, I, I did a hybrid of I read the first two chapters and then I listened to you. The rest in, in the car. I'm on the road a lot. Uh, it's a great book on tape. Um, Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, it, it's it's uh, you know as i will tell you, I'm a pretty slow reader, but I like reading what I like to read, and this was a really good one because it it um it's not too academic. It gets you everything you need to know, but you can hear. You can kind of hear your position in the book, which I like and I agree with um, two things. One is I want to compliment you on the first chapter with Oklahoma City. It just like it should be required reading. It just kind of makes you go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And, I, and you put yourself back there. I think I was in high school. But I rem- once, once I read that, I was like, oh, my God, I do remember them blaming radical Muslims. This is before 9-11 and mm-hmm. then kind of like never apologizing, <laughs> never apologizing for that. Um, I guess I want my question. I'm covered a lot of what I was uh, going to ask. Um, you know, especially with the where the media was, and I I went back and read the uh, Susan Sontag. Uh, thing from the new yorker that i had not known about and it's like wow there were some people uh you know it was like the original cancel culture it was like they yep. were canceling critics of the war on terror and there's just something i was thinking about that because i fight with a lot of my friends about cancel culture because i'm just like what well, it doesn't affect good people like it's what are you so afraid of and then i was like oh no one's oh, talking but
1: about- instead
2: yeah, it, it, yeah it's like th- this has been going on way before you know the rape cancel culture and the, and the cancel culture of like people doing horrible stuff. It's like people are being canceled for speaking the truth for a long time. Um, my big question is, Amma and I are always so critical of the Democrats. I want to know how, if you have an opinion on this, how has the GOP done such a good job at not taking any blame for this, uh, you know, and probably going to win again next year and we are, if anything, have people outraged that Biden ended the war, where you had said it's kind of like television. No one's really been paying attention, but how have they brainwashed a, a whole, a, a, a big portion of our country into like being angry that it's over?
1: If no one pushes back on you, except on the terms that you define, then you're going to win. You're going to establish. Um, a reputation even while you know you do things that even your constituents can see as you know fucking psychotic um for being a vessel through which they understand their own aspirations and can see you know political power through them the democratic party just doesn't do that i think it it kind of it kind of can't do or, or it will have to redefine itself um, to have some kind of relationship to like actual working class people um whose interests um American you know politics does not take seriously um and kind of isn't here for. um the the Republican party's success, I think is you know it in just a tremendous tremendous fashion due to the way in which um after, nineteen sixty four it reinvented itself slowly um, as the party of white grievance, as a vessel for um, what is one of the most foundational aspects of American political culture. Um, the Democratic Party, previously the repository um and of 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 that same impulse, has not figured out a commensurate and powerful identity i don't believe that it can because it is opposed to socialism and accordingly uh it can really only like gesture at you know the upper middle class like version um of uh of, of the interests of the multiracial working class, which will be, you know, symbolic. It'll be, you know, a banaton ad about, um, inclusion. It won't be about material redistribution of, you know, wealth, freedom, and power. So, you know, that, that is kind of, you know, that, um, uh, if you were to ask me about it, as you did, like my kind of, description of, of, of the hellscape before we get into like what the hellscape is operationally right. and what the hellscape is structurally. Those are the forces that we have to kind of play in, um, when we deal with national politics, um, that, uh, reinforce, um, and reflect the hellscape.
2: Great. Um, early on when you and I were speaking, you had, you had both kind of talked about like the, this elite, uh, uh, sect of, uh, the GOP that, is aware of what they're doing, what the narrative is. Um, Do you think that was the case and now that's just who they are? Do you still think that behind closed doors, Mitch McConnell and these wackos are meeting going, you know, we've got the American people afraid of uh, uh, Muslims. Let's really push down on that. Or do you just believe they've now become the party of we're afraid of those people. We need to destroy them.
1: I don't know. You know, so much of the war on terror is a story about Americans convincing themselves of things. Um there there is certainly a shitload of grift and deception um throughout the war on terror. Um but you know, very often the grift and the deception kind of rests on the bed of either self-deception or an unwillingness uh to, you know, substitute, you know, myth for history. Um so, you know, very often these things aren't so neatly distinguished. Um, I have no idea what Mitch McConnell thinks in private. Um, I've never been a congressional reporter, um, and so don't really want to speak to that. um, but I think, um to try and answer your question, um, Americans like tend to act in accordance um with particularly American elites, tend to act in accordance um with the ways in which both um they understand um american history uh to have played out which is very often um not particularly faithful to actual history but um instead um relies on on very cherished myths and that sort of forms a kind of you know firmware um so to speak um that you know when combined with direct material interest um shapes the ways in which uh we see politicians act um so i don't know if that's a satisfying answer it is it's fine um okay w- one more question um
2: i particularly got really angry listening to some of the um let's let's call it freedoms that have been secretly taken away from us and then some of the um results of that especially with the cia and the torture program um could you just For people that just for some odd reason aren't interested in that, could you just kind of talk about some of the big freedoms that secretly were taken away from us? Obviously, we all know about the Patriot Act, but can you just kind of talk about, you know, you just you see George W. Bush hanging out with Ellen DeGeneres. You see you see him on Kimmel. These are apparently left leaning people. Um, Can you kind of talk about what this administration took from us that we just seem to not care about?
1: how much time you have um let's do a couple so first just to say one quick thing about the patriot act um the patriot act is probably best understood you know it's it there's a lot of things that the patriot act is and that i think sometimes you know frustrates journalistic attempts at explaining it clearly what the patriot act fundamentally is uh is a tool that criminalizes association which is to say you as um, a body of law known as material support for terrorism uh, exists and operates as you can be found liable um, for complicity in violent acts that happen very downstream of your actions um, when those actions have to do um, with supporting certain institutions, often charities um, and so forth. So first, The freedom of association uh is put under threat that of course is a first amendment freedom Um, we tend to talk about the first amendment more in terms of speech press and religion but association um, is central to it as well you know you think about it for 30 seconds and you understand uh why it's very very dangerous uh to start attributing guilt to people who know uh people who know people who committed acts of violence um that, however, would be uh, replicated at scale uh, by the National Security Agency, which, after 9 11, exempts itself from the only legislation inhibiting its ability to collect all the communications, particularly the international communications um, of Americans. And that action, ratified um, first by Congress in 2008. Uh, something that Barack Obama votes for right before he becomes president. Um, and the transformation of uh, the economy into something that the Harvard Business School professor emerita, Shoshana Zuboff, calls surveillance capitalism, together renders the Fourth Amendment quaint. You do not have the right to security of your personal effects um, without... Um, warrantless intrusion from the government that that is really something that i don't think we have sufficiently grappled with that like it became very fashionable um after 9-11 with the passage of the patriot act and then um after the edward snowden surveillance revelations um and as well um other episodes um to talk about uh how freedom of association the right to privacy were under threat um, as well, of course, from um, from Silicon Valley. Um, I don't think that I, I don't I think we've far, far past uh, the realm of privacy and association being under threat. I think we're we're in a period of sustained violation and accordingly sustained constitutional emergency. Um, it is and was on 9 eleven as after nine eleven, illegal. Red letter of the law, illegal to torture people. This became a major preoccupation of the CIA um, and then the military through discrete bureaucratic patterns of expanding uh, the uh, number and agency agencies of people who uh, were deemed uh, by the Justice Department allowed uh to conduct torture um that's a you know pretty serious violation um not just of people's dignity but people's freedom um and it went hand in hand uh with an assault on habeas corpus which is a foundational doctrine of anglo-american jurisprudence that says you know fundamentally so you have to have a trial if someone accuses you of a crime you cannot just be locked up forever you have the right to challenge the circumstances of your detention that uh for uh so-called enemy combatants um in the war um some of whom uh although this you know still did um you know become subject very belatedly to legal challenges um included american citizens um came um, entrenched within American law, uh, which is to say that is the reason that there are to this day, 39 men held at Guantanamo Bay. Um, This is something that might seem like it only applies uh, to those people over there, quote unquote, except remember that America Is already a deeply carceral country first off second off that um after the you know during the summer of 2020 the um the justice department the white house under trump start talking um with with like increasing frequency um and then the mechanisms of the state that Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters, which is to say black people and left wing and left wingers in the United States um, and their allies are terrorists. He, Trump, uses not just the rhetoric of the war on terror, but the mechanisms of the war on terror, from drone surveillance over 15 cities uh, to minimally marked, kitted for battle Um, law enforcement from uh, the U.S. Marshals and the Department of Homeland Security and so forth. And then thirdly, let's also just keep in mind um, that QAnon, um, whether or not it's on the wane right now, um, but uh, QAnon, an expression of kind of Trumpist political cultism, um, has as a rather central element of its own, uh, this revenge fantasy about locking treasonous left-wingers um they use left-winger and democrat um synonymously even though that's ridiculous but in guantanamo bay so we've got a lot of um we've got a lot of pressure on the thin membrane that after 9-11 tried to separate all of the impunity that america could inflict on all, all of the violence with all of the impunity that America could inflict on non-white, non-Americans, and this supposed zone of safety, uh, known as the Constitution that we as Americans enjoy. I also think it's necessary to point out how uh, the Department of Homeland Security, by its creation, um, which is the aft, which is in the aftermath of 9/11, this is not, you know, a particularly you know entrenched aspect of American governance. Um, it's a very recent one. But it becomes the architecture to transform immigration from a mechanism to generate more Americans into one that suppresses those uh, who have who have come here, uh, meter out the ability for America for for um, people to migrate um, to America and treat those in both circumstances with maximum cruelty uh, to implement you know what um, operates as um, you know, eventually unsubtly a border wall. Um, this is an exceptionally dangerous aspect of American history, um, to entrench. Um, and right now it is very entrenched, but its legitimacy should never be taken for granted, nor should its strength.
0: Yeah. Um, there's that section in your book where you talk about those migration of techniques, um, that, you know, from, from the salt pit to, to the, uh, the ice boxes of the border, um, that, that basically the weaponization of air conditioning, um, and, and that there's, it's weird how all of these, there's the, the sort of the culture, um, the military culture of the war, if you like, or the security culture of the war metastasizes in all these different directions. So you get, ISIS doing the sort of inversion, um, dressing up Western hostages in orange jumpsuits, just like in Guantanamo and so on. Um, and then, and then people, other security forces domestically following the, the quote unquote, best practices of the military, um, to, to do their, you know, imprisonment and so on. I'm one thing that, you know, I want I want to get to the sort of the second part of your book, which is really the sort of the the political transformation, right? So we've we've got the the architect, we've got the story about the architecture and the construction of the American security state, both what pre-existed and how that was sort of modified and renovated by by the war on terror. Um, but then, you know, the, the 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 subtitle of your book sort of talks about, and then we, we it's a sort of a path to Trump here. And there was an there was a moment in the book where you argued that um, the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, when it switches from the Cordoba House, uh, the the initial sort of conception of it to the Ground Zero Mosque, that there's a sort of a Trump or Trump-like presidency is inevitable. Um, why do you think that that? event and the media circus around it and the sort of the various forces involved um have the sort of explanatory value to sort of create some but some to produce trump in the offing
1: so the war on terror is kind of like um the chad who comes and loosens up the lid on the pickle jar um for trump to just twist it off a little Um, the war on terror as I think we've talked about um, a little bit, has this civilizational nativist essentializing politics animating it throughout. Simultaneously, its operations just take sledgehammers to the foundation of all of these institutions that are supposed to protect Americans' freedoms um, from authoritarian demagogues. Um, And similarly, uh, the people who carry out the war on terror um, from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, um, they – sorry, my wife just texted me um, – the people who carry out the war on terror from the Bush administration uh, to the Trump administration um, relentlessly lie. Um, Deceive themselves and lie um, about what the operations they're conducting are, um, their prospect for success and so forth. And then the war on terror itself um, becomes pretty rapidly and pretty obviously um, this horrific slog that doesn't show American strength on the world as it was conceived of doing. It shows instead American weakness and American viciousness. And the agony of not being able to overcome that circumstance, but instead having it persist um, and have persistence become the mark of, you know, if not victory, um, you know, some kind of stalwart American strength that's meant to impress America's enemies, right? Um, none of that materializes. The war on terror, particularly, you know, as we've discussed, uh, when understood um, and experienced as a media phenomenon, leads to a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance in American dissatisfaction um, with both um, the war and its practitioners. Those practitioners, particularly under, uh, during the Obama administration, quickly become the stewards of the war, so the war on terror starts kind of looking like, you know, part of you know it, th- this is contradictory in terms of how it actually plays out. So you've got to kind of live within that contradiction from for explanatory purposes. But you've got on the one hand this narrative of the black president who you know is already aligned with the terrorists, um, subverting the war on terror, which is to say America's safety. Uh, from within the White House, and also simultaneously um, the Black president presiding over um, this kind of corrupted security establishment, um, which holds to the persistence of these wars and never kind of gets us to win. All of that is what's sort of in the the atmosphere um, in 2010, when uh, these highly respectable... Um, figures in New York public life um, uh, who happen to be Muslim um, purchase uh, a building that had been damaged uh, by falling debris from the planes um, near uh, the former side of the World Trade Center as a way of kind of establishing um, a kind of Islamic space that's a civic space for the people of New York, kind of like how um, here in New York, we have the 92nd Street Y um, that like fills this cultural and intellectual space of the city, but it's also a Jewish space. Um, that became understood, thanks to these forces that we've, we've just discussed, as a great civilizational offense, um, as what the media particularly, you know, not just Fox News, but, you know, CNN and MSNBC too, um, and a lot of the major papers shorthanded as the ground zero mosque, more viciously, the victory mosque, a celebration. Basically they they thought that this was like turning Hagia Sophia um, into a mosque after uh, Mehmet the Conqueror takes Constantinople, right? Um, so that was the portrayal um, throughout the summer of 2010 filled with like 9-11-fueled demonstrations um, that kind of show that it's not just about the placement of this mosque, but it, it shows that America is losing this civilizational war and losing it from within. That America is becoming less American. We will eventually become very familiar with this rhetoric because of the way it talks about replacement. Replacement of the people America is supposed to be for by people America is supposed to be against. Um, Donald Trump himself, uh, as he's kicking around the idea of running for president against Barack Obama, inserts himself into this dynamic um, by trying to shake down um, the business partners of Imam Ralph and his wife, Daisy Khan, uh, to get them to move Cordoba House. Um, and he operates like straight up like a shakedown artist and says, you know, I'll buy this for you. You're going to take a loss from it and you can move this somewhere else. But look, if you don't do this, it's going to get really, really bad for you. I think you should really consider that you got to move someplace else. And that, you know, looking back on it, um, you know, from the perspective of um, of a couple years distance, you you sort of see everything there. Um, not, you know, just through the explicit involvement of Trump, but the aggravated dynamics, how racialized those dynamics are, um, and how furious those dynamics are driven pretextually uh, from appeal to this sacral land that the blood of 9-11 has rendered holy. And I think from there, you can really start to see combined with Uh, The lack of meaningful resistance um, from liberal politicians who, of course, are, you know, being liberals, not going to incline towards substantial resistance. Um, Anyway, um, really, the Trump administration in beta test that, you know, all of these forces together, um, particularly when unchallenged or insufficiently challenged, gather in strength. They win. There is no court of the House um, in lower Manhattan, that space is primarily luxury condos. Um, so you also see, uh, the ways in which capital is at work here, uh, to say like, yeah, you know, that's a little bit too hot, but look, we could make money doing this and just accommodate that sentiment. Um, and everyone's happy. Um, so, you know, there you start seeing, um, in, in, in really explicit, like glaring, blinking red light ways, Um, The ways in which uh, the war on terror um, takes a kind of turn of the ratchet, focusing inwardly, seeing that uh, this civilizational enemy um, might not be beatable abroad, though we have no choice but to, you know, inflict greater and greater violence upon them until they respect us again, but it might be defeatable here at home.
2: Okay. We could um, go all day, but <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot here. Um, one thing that I just wanted to sort of mention, um, just for our listeners is that in the book, you go into detail about some of the really, truly gruesome and disgusting, um, elements of the torture program. Um, and, and not even perhaps what would be part of the torture program, but really just the um, intentional cruelty um, meted out by the security establishment in Guantanamo, Iraq, et cetera, um, down to children. Um, and um, I'm living up here in Vermont. And there was just news yesterday that uh, Patrick Leahy is, no, is not running for re-election um, He's, you know, I guess uh, forty-eight uh, years is enough uh, in in the Senate, and um, and I was pleased to see in the book that he was um, a prime mover behind a, a, a truth and reconciliation approach to the torture program, right? That that you know there should be some accounting, um, and effectively he was overruled by the Obama administration and presumably you know Barack Obama. Um, I'm wondering you know that to what extent um, if you can sort of I don't know if this can be sort of augured in any way but but you know down the line say in twenty years thirty years when perhaps more documents become uh, available um, when the heavily redacted uh, torture reports of of Jones and so on are, are really available to the public um, do you think that 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 approach, uh, some sort of accounting of what has gone on in this war, um, is necessary and can can and can do some good, um, or is that not? Is that just sort of like not an American thing? Like that's just not going to happen in American culture because there happened to be slavery and that we haven't even really gotten through that yet. So,
1: so first a note on that. Um, you know, the first people placed. Um, by Americans into stress positions, uh, which is a central aspect of the torture program are people stolen from Africa and packed into the holds of slave ships. Um, the first people, uh, who experience child separation in the United States are not only enslaved people, but native people as a tool, uh, to break them and make them subservient and The, you know, similarly, um, you know, the first people um, who are uh, the first Americans uh, who have water tortures visited on them are enslaved people and native peoples Um, that will eventually spread uh, by the American military, um, certainly other militaries as well um, overseas um, to the conquest of the Philippines where american officers many of whom had served um in the the final stages of the indian wars in in the american uh west um to combine with some new uh learning that they got from their former spanish adversaries and become waterboarding and the united states would visit waterboarding uh upon uh filipinos who uh had the audacity uh to try and run their own affairs um So the techniques that America reaches for in the war on terror are not innovations. America reaches for these tools because America has always reached for these tools. These are just the latest formulations of um, these techniques. This is very, very deeply ingrained in American history and American culture. There's muscle memory happening here, and there are also interests at work here. Uh, that ensure that uh, these muscles get exercised uh, now and again. At the same time, I don't want to ever have an atmosphere of resignation or inevitability about any of this. Americans standing in solidarity with one another um, have always been the only thing that forces this history to, in fact, stop stall out modify or get beaten back these struggles accordingly have to be understood um not in terms of uh you know states of victory socially speaking politically speaking um but part of a reaction that goes hand in hand with living in a country shaped by this history um Otherwise, that history will just win and will, you know, just lead to uh, greater misery, unfreedom and poverty for so many. Um, The war on terror is a suite of tools and a social political um, catechism, as well as an economic engine that reinforces all of this history. But that doesn't have to be our history. That doesn't have to be our future. That doesn't have to be our history foretold is what I mean. To say um, all of this can be resisted and none of this has to be treated as just the weather that that we have to um, live under. And I think like the moment of democratic emergency that I don't mean capital D, I mean small D democratic emergency, is America just becomes structurally Uh, less Democratic as fewer and fewer people um, are granted access uh, to voting by design by Republican state legislatures, um, aided and abetted uh, by Republicans in Congress, the meager efforts of Democrats in response to that. um, And as well, um, the, you know, quite severe in the past year, turn away um, within uh, Republican Party mainstream elements of accepting basic aspects of you know even the denuded you know democracy um, that America currently practices like respecting the legitimacy of elections. Um, you know, I, I go back to uh, this line from the Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee, um, who in some cases is quite good on uh war on terror uh um civil libertarian uh resistance um but he had this um this observation um, around the election last year in which he said like democracy isn't the point liberty the preservation of virtue or i forget exactly what you know he said is that point and like at, you know clearly at that point he has a very specific idea even if he will not say it of whose liberty matters he And, you know, that is a threat to the liberty of everyone who he does not have in mind. That is a circumstance um, that the war on terror serves, reinforces, and gives a whole lot of tools um, to an imaginative administration, having already been, you know, brought up with the history of the Trump administration Deciding that actually the terrorists are, you know, black people and left wingers. Um, the terrorists are those Americans that we don't consider to count as real Americans. Um, that licenses a tremendous amount of violence and provides the mechanisms for delivering that violence. And I think that is a five star civic alarm for us. And it is why I wrote Reign of Terror.
2: Wow.
0: Okay. Well, um, thank you for coming on. Thank you for the book. It's, I mean, it's a, it's really a must read for everybody. Um, the
2: book is awesome, Spencer. I I hope one day it becomes required reading. It really is. It's such a good
1: book. Uh, Everyone should read it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Abed Um, and
1: Tony, I really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for this.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. All right. Um, hopefully next book you're coming back on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Bet. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So, um, it was great. And the book is great. You know, that, that you were saying something about the the chapter on Oklahoma.
2: I mean, it is in itself. It's like a work of art. I mean, I don't know. It should be published. Maybe it is. I didn't want to offend him by asking if it was, but like it should be published on its own. I mean, it is, it is like such a eye opener where it's something we should all know, but it's just so far in the past that we just forget about that. I mean, remember when that happened? When that building up blown up and all those kids were dead, and we just—I remember was awful.
0: I, I lived in DC. Um, I think it was either right before nine eleven or after, when Timothy McVeigh was executed. Yeah. So, and that was right around two thousand, maybe two thousand one. I forget, right around there. And so that was kind of in my consciousness um, when nine eleven happened. But I never put two and two, I never connected them, right? That that they were sort of for me, they were like discrete stories. It was like, oh, this is white supremacy. And then there's you know, nine eleven, which is this different thing. Um, and I kept them in, in sort of separate buckets, you know. And and I think that's what's so interesting about you know his his interpretation, and I think it makes all the sense in the world, is that America has a homegrown, you know. Hey. White supremacist Christian Al Qaeda of their own, but they don't see them as such. They're just like you know. No, they're the people that storm the capital. Veterans who feel like aggrieved, and we yeah. know about them, and you know, you know, they're and 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 eventually, you know, these are the people who like the type of people who will go storm the Capitol, right? And like, exactly. so that and, and they're you know maybe they'll get six months in jail or whatever. Um, no, the book is the book is really really good um, and and he's you know he speaks so well and he writes really well and it's um it's an easy read i mean it's a troubling read i don't want to give the wrong impression here it's really disturbing um yeah but, it's it's but important you can, though you can really sort of plow through it so when
2: you, you get to that. those torture chapters it's like you got to walk you can't just keep reading you got to take a break yeah, very hard yeah um Humiliation. i mean what, murder they murdered people innocent people they froze to death it yeah. is unbelievable Anyway,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, but here we are
2: uh, on the on the, the the brink of another GOP-dominated election next year, and it's just we'll you sit hopefully. here and you watch. Hopefully, but I mean, how could you? How could you not at least be prepping for that? I mean, as, there's as, no one locked
0: up. Trump, as, as Spencer just noted, that we should not give into resignation. I'm not Uh, resignating, but I'm just saying, I know multiple so-called
2: Democrats that they just hate the progressives. And it's like, cool, feed into their bullshit, man. And what Spencer was saying is now we're terrorists, black and brown are terrorists, protesters against uh, inhumane things are terrorists, and you idiots are falling for all of it. And it's funny because I was just fighting with someone about this, not fighting, debating, but it's like, we're not Democrats, right? But p- those poor Democrats, man, they get, you know, all the stuff we're fighting for, they get sucked into it. They don't like us either. And it's just, they haven't found, they haven't found a way to like, cause they don't stand for anything, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because or at
2: least there's been no, like this guy should be on the administration. He should be helping them go. How do we remind people that, that George W. Bush and these morons started this? How do we
0: remind them? It's the, I think the. The problem here is that you've got Barack Obama and Donald Trump, and obviously, as people, they're night and day. They're as different as they can as you can be. Uh, but effectively, in terms of the rhetoric they used, they both ran in their own ways as you know, sort of anti-war and certainly against what they considered dumb wars, right? Wars against American interests and and, and so on, and. Um, And then they both proceeded to fully embrace the war on terror um, and ratchet it up in their own ways. Right. Um, So when you have the genteel technocratic version of that, like the Spock version from from Barack Obama, um, and then you have the bloodthirsty version from Donald Trump, but when the policies aren't that different. You know how, how, what, what? legs do you have to stand on when you're saying that you should vote democratic, right? Because when, when we, because we, because the words we use to describe our killing are nicer, um, you know, that that's, that's should not be, I mean, you I mean, that's effectively their argument, right? Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, um, read the book. It's easy. Listen to the book. It's great.
2: Um, Um, and then write to us.
0: Yeah. And we're going to be back. Um, a couple more times this year and then next year is an election year so mm-hmm. that's going to be we're going to be back on the regular um and thinking about you know 2022 it's already here my god time to go all right no politics at the dinner
2: table is produced by Amar Prakash, some beats and tunes by our buddy g beta Roy. um we will be back soon see
0: you soon